Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I want to start out, though, by kind of kind of off the topic a bit, but I want to start out by having you reflect on a, on a short quote that I always like to think about from time to time. Um, it's an important quote. It's really simple, straightforward, but the quote is, the only thing we can't do is nothing. Now, think about that quote for a second in the context of the plight of our brother and sister Christians in the Middle East. And we've, we've all seen or read articles and seen videos about the atrocities, about the persecution taking place, especially in Iraq and Syria. Again, the quote is, the only thing we can't do is nothing. Actually, a friend of mine who spent his, he's an older individual, he spent his entire life working on behalf of uh, international human rights and, and uh, religious freedom around the world. He, he and I were talking about the situation over there, halfway across the world, and how it can be frustrating to, to feel like you're having an impact, a positive impact on, on the situation, on the problem. And, and he kind of uttered this you know, straightforward piece of advice, offhanded piece of advice, um, because I think he was trying to, to challenge me and, and maybe even challenge himself or at least remind himself not to be sort of paralyzed into inaction by the enormity of a, of a situation or the enormity of a problem that's taking place all the way across the world. But the more I, I thought about that, that piece of advice, a, a couple of ideas emerged that I, that I again, I like to reflect, reflect upon and remind people about. Um, the first one is that we have to remind ourselves that anybody can be an agent of positive change and that we all sort of have a responsibility to be an agent of change. Now, sometimes when we, I mean, you guys are in, in school, and I remember the many years I went to, uh, to, to university, uh, too many years probably, but even, even today, you know, we, we read history books um, and we tend, you know, the history books tend to focus on certain events and, and the leaders involved in those events. So right now, for example, I'm reading The History of the English-Speaking People by Winston Churchill. As you can imagine, it's, it's a long book, and, you know, as most of us would do if we had to write a book like that, we foc- you know, Churchill focuses on the major events and the kings and the queens and spiritual leaders and political leaders um, that you know, we're important at that time. And we do the same thing with our own history, right? Can anybody name anybody else involved with the emancipation of, of slaves? We, we think of Abraham Lincoln as being as if he was the only person involved. Or we think of Martin Luther King Jr. as, you know, sort of synonymous with the civil rights movement. And we have a, we have a day for him and sort of the civil rights day. And there's nothing wrong with that, but oftentimes if we only focus on, on particular people or leaders, people in, in power, we kind of forget that we all can have an impact and we all have a responsibility to play a role, even if it's sort of behind the scenes. Uh, we were talking about the resolution that just was, was passed. And, and I know so many people who you know, aren't going to get the recognition for it. We, we tend to give, give praise. And there's nothing wrong with it to the politicians. And a, and a friend of ours, uh, Hellman, uh, an individual with uh, a demand for action, he has a saying that is sort of very common in Washington, D.C. I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember it. It's, the person in the photo is rarely in the picture. So if you go to Washington and you go to visit your member of Congress, you want to have a picture. I mean, I have pictures like that all, all over. 
but the person in the photo, the, the representative, is rarely in the picture as far as making the decisions. It's usually the person making very little money, who, who's tapping the you know member of Congress on the shoulder, saying, "Look, what your constituents, you know, the people that are voting for you or not voting for you, they care about this issue, so you better care about it too." And then they tell them, "Okay, this is what's going on," and, and you know they learn a little bit about it, but and they get all the credit, and that's fine. But again, there's so many people behind the scenes that do all the work. And there's also, also a lot of people that might not dedicate their lives to a particular cause or movement or trying to find a solution to a problem. Millions of people, but they, they support it in little ways. And without all those millions of people, without the people behind the scenes, you know, positive change would never, uh, would never take place. Um, now, I, I want you to keep in mind that you know, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, neither Helma or I, we're not historians or public policy analysts, although we, we have our opinions. So later on, we're going to have a little Q&A. But um, you know, as a filmmaker, I see my major role as sort of well, telling stories. And usually I tell it visually, and we'll be showing some video clips in a bit. But also having sort of come from, I think, a similar place as a lot of you come from. And that is, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, but... I didn't know a lot about the Middle East just a few years ago, but I knew that there are Christians there. I knew that I wanted to help, and I had the opportunity to travel on a number of occasions. And when I met with Christians there, what I learned was very different than what I thought going in. And so I saw my role as like a bridge between the stories, the opinions, the information that I was getting from them and people here, people like, like you guys. And so a lot of what I'm going to be communicating is, is, is what I've heard from them, because they really felt like they didn't have a voice. And I felt like, well, this is my opportunity to be their voice, either through photos or video or, or my words. Now, before allowing Helma to come up and tell a little bit about her background and her story, I, um, I would also like to start with, with a short story. Now, about two years ago, I found myself about 30 miles south of Midyat in southern Turkey. It's right on the, on the border between Turkey and Syria. It, that night, it was about 10 p.m., and it was raining. It had been raining all day for, for at least a couple of days, very muddy out. And I was in the car with two individuals. One is a friend of mine. His name is Robert. He actually went to, to, to uh, Steubenville here, Franciscan. And the other man was a man named Sawa. Now, Sawa turned out to be one of the more interesting and mysterious people that I've ever met. To be honest, uh, my friend and I, we weren't really sure where Sawa came from. We knew that he had spent time in France and Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. We also knew that he was Christian, which is very important, especially in that part of the world, and that he was very trusted amongst our contacts in that area. We also knew that he had a reputation for getting resources, whether it be money, weapons, or even people from Turkey into Syria to his, his Christian friends there. Now, we decided to hike into Syria from Turkey by foot illegally at night. But it wasn't a decision that we took lightly. We knew the risks involved. In fact, later we found out a few months earlier, the last time Sawa had tried to get in or had gone into the, to, uh, Syria, he went in with two French journalists, and they were later captured by ISIS. Now, beyond the obvious risks of, of, of ISIS, or at this point it was more al-Qaeda and al-Nusra, there are other, other risks. For example, they have a lot of um, 
sort of freelance kidnappers, right? People who want to make a lot of money might kidnap, let's say, a journalist, especially an American or European, sell them for a lot of money to an extremist group. And then the extremist group will, will try to extort money from either the family or the government of that journalist or they'll, and or they'll kill them. Finally, we have to worry about the Turkish border police, too. They're patrolling the border between Syria and Turkey and trying to stop people from coming and going. And they're, they're known to shoot first and sort of ask questions later. But despite these concerns, you know, my, my fear at that point is we'd gone all that way. And I, I felt like we might turn back because of, of all the rain and the mud. But luckily, before prudence got the best of us, somebody, our, our guide, was knocking on, on our car door and we were off sort of you know, running or a slow run off into the darkness and into the rain. The mud was very thick and the, the rocks were slippery, so we kept kept falling in the mud. And But luckily our adrenaline took over. After about an hour, we came to a barbed wire fence. Now this sort of represented like a, like a no man's land in, in between two countries. And we opened up the barbed wire fence, or it was cut open, and there's about a football field length uh, area that we had to worry about landmines at that point um, between Turkey and Syria. But we, we were told, don't worry, most of them have been picked up. The key word being most, in my, in my opinion, at that point. But we, we just followed the guide foot by, you know, each footstep. We felt like we were going to be okay. And so we got to the other side. And after about another 30 minutes of sort of this speed walk that we took in complete silence and darkness, we could hear gun, gunshots and, and, you know, off in the distance. Finally, we, we, we saw a car off in the distance, and that was going to be our transportation to El Malakia, which is a small town in northeast Syria. I'm going to kind of skip around, but this is, there's a monastery, this is shot from a monastery, a photo off into the, if you've heard of the Nineveh Plain, this is in, in northern Iraq, a photo uh, from, from a monastery there. Okay, that's Malakia, and you see a Kurdish family here walking by, and there's a church in the background. Um, so once in Malakia, the, the only thing I remember from that first night was the smell of gasoline and it was very foggy. It just consumed us. Now, before being taken to this abandoned hotel where we were going to spend the night, we went to the headquarters of a militia, a Christian militia, called the Syriac Military Council, or MFS. So it, it was late at night and we were sitting there with members of MFS. And of course, as everywhere we gone in both Iraq and Syria, we were offered very hot tea. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, 110 degrees in, in July or any time of the year, any time of the day, you're given hot tea. And both Robert and I expected this group of embattled Christians to, to sort of beg or plead for us to help them or, and or help their family members or friends to leave Syria. I mean, who wouldn't want to leave a place that you know, they're experiencing genocide? Instead, they were adamant about their desire and actually their, their need to stay there. As we sat drinking with the, with the leaders of MFS, both Robert and I looked these guys, these members of MFS in the eye and they, and they really surprised us and actually broke our hearts because they told us one thing that really stuck in the minds of both of us. They said, they asked us, why aren't America, Americans helping us? Why isn't the Christian West helping us. No one is helping us in our ancestral homeland, and, and we feel like we're completely alone. They explained their need that they needed to stay and implored us that if we couldn't help them stay, at least don't help them to leave. Don't make it easier for them to leave 
or at the very, very least, don't help those that are trying to kick them out. Anyway, a few, a few minutes later, our new friends um, pointed to a cross. Robert was wearing this, this, this cross around his neck, and it was visible. One of the guys looked at the others, and he said, I made it sound like that. They all, well, we, we all burst out laughing. Well, we, we didn't, actually. They did, and Robert and I didn't. And so Robert tucked it underneath, because they were implying that to wear a cross visibly in Syria could get you killed. So like I said, Robert started to tuck the cross under his shirt, and the same, the same individual, all of a sudden he said, no. This time he was implying that, yeah, to be a Christian, to be visibly Christian could get you killed, but you should never deny that. So the question that I know Robert has asked himself and I've asked myself a lot over the last couple of years is that if, if these Christians were willing to, to die for their faith, for their family, for their land, for their communities, what were we willing to do to help them stay there? Now, before having Helma come up, I, I'm going to show the, uh, the trailer that we finished for our last stand. It's about five minutes. It's actually a pretty good introduction to her as well because the documentary is focused on her journey back to her ancestral homeland in, in Iraq and Syria. Um, and then I'll have her come up. We, we finished the trailer about three months ago, and uh, it's, it's really gotten a lot of attention on EWTN, and we've shown it already a number of places, just the trailer, the French Embassy and a few other events, and uh, a lot of attention on social media as well. Um, so I'll, I'll show that now. I'm very closely connected to this cause, and I appreciate this opportunity that you've given us to spread awareness about such a dire need to help my people, the Assyrian, Chaldean, Syriac Christians, still living in our indigenous homeland in parts of Syria, Iraq, and Turkey today. Ultimately, I believe that um, providing opportunities through gatherings like this tonight um, are extremely important because they allow us to get to know each other and to get to know our different churches on a deeper level. And ultimately, this ecumenical work helps us you know, build relationships so that we can really unite and work together to protect our Christian brothers and sisters that so badly need our help all over the world. I am a little nervous, I have to admit. <laughs> it's funny because I have an audience every day. I have an audience of uh, nine-year-olds. I'm a fourth grade teacher, so I do stand in, in front of a group and, <laughs> and talk every day. But, you know, obviously there's a different um, kind of preparation <laughs> that goes into um, planning to speak, you know, in front of university students. Um, but I am very excited at this opportunity. I wanted to begin my talk tonight by telling you a little bit more about myself, uh, who I am, um, where I come from. I wanted to tell you about my Assyrian background and my culture. Um, and in doing so, I hope to acquaint you with um, the traditions of our church that our culture is actually so very closely tied to. <clears throat> as you saw in the trailer, and as I just um, explained, I am a fourth grade teacher, and I love it. You know, it's something that I felt was my vocation very early on. Um, I teach at a public school in Long Island, New York, and I've actually been there for 15 years teaching fourth grade. Um, I consider myself an Assyrian American because I was born in the United States, not too far from here actually, I was born in Chicago, and um, I lived there all through high school and then eventually moved to Long Island with my family. 
but both my parents are immigrants to the United States. Um, they both happen to be born in Syria, and not just Syria, they're both born in this tiny little village that you probably wouldn't find on, on a map of Syria. It's called Khamishli. Um, and what, what's, what's really funny is that um, when I first started speaking to Jordan, one of the first things he said was, I went to Midyat in Turkey, as he just explained, and that's where my you know, great-grandparents are from. Again, a place no one's ever heard of. And then he said, yeah, and then we crossed the border into Syria, and we went to this place called Khamishli. And then I was like, oh my gosh, God definitely wanted us to meet and work together on this project because, you know, coincidences like that just don't happen. So, but both my parents were born in the same village, although they didn't know each other in Syria. Uh, my mother's family eventually moved to Lebanon. Um, but the reason they came to the United States was to get away, to flee from the civil war, basically, in Lebanon in the 1970s. Um, my mom's grandmother who uh, lived with them in their little apartment in Beirut, um, actually passed away sitting right at her kitchen table uh, when a stray bullet flew through the window and struck her in the chest and eventually caused her death. Uh, my father, on the other hand, who was living in Syria, um, he decided to come here actually when he was around your age. He was college-aged, and he came here seeking higher education. Um, I was talking to the fathers before, um, and I was explaining that, you know, he was your typical, you know, village boy, and he was happy where he was. Um, he was very much embedded in his community there. But Christians in the Middle East just never really had the same rights and the same opportunities as their Muslim neighbors. And so, you know, he wanted to be a doctor. And uh, so he thought the best place would be to come here and, you know, um, chase that dream. Uh, but shortly after his arrival to the United States, um, God had another plan for him. <coughs> he heard his true calling and uh, followed the path to priesthood. <clears throat> and see, in our church, in the Orthodox um, Church, you have to be um, married before you can even become ordained as a priest. <clears throat> so he became shepherd to the small flock of immigrants that had established the first Syriac Orthodox Church uh, in Chicago. Uh, as I mentioned before, we are ethnically Assyrians. And some of you may be wondering, I've heard about it. I remember hearing about them in, in you know, history class uh, way back when, but who were they again? <clears throat> I heard that question a lot, uh, especially when I was younger. And uh, you know, when you're a kid, you try your hardest to fit in, right? Um, you don't like those qualities about you that set you apart from everyone else. Um, I remember <laughs> getting embarrassed very easily when kids couldn't pronounce my name. Um, which is actually pretty easy to say compared to the names of my siblings, you know, and other family members. Um, I would get so embarrassed when my grandmother would poke her head out the, you know, like the front door and, and yell out to us to come in to eat, you know, in Assyrian. Um, and the worst was when my dad, the priest, would come pick me up from, you know, after school activities, you know, dressed in his black clothes and his white collar. That was always the hardest to explain <laughs> to friends, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think I must have been in like third or fourth grade, probably around eight or nine years old, um, when the first, for the first time, I realized that I couldn't actually point to a map um, when someone asked me what country Assyrians were from. Um, and I remember going home and asking my dad, you know, if our country is Syria. You know, we call ourselves Assyrians. It sounds like Syria, and I know 
both my parents are born there. So I just, you know, I was a little kid. I just assumed that we're from Syria. Um, but I was wrong. Right away he said no. Uh, he said Syria is a majority Muslim country. Thank you. And we only make about, you know, 4% of the population there. <clears throat> Let me just stop. So I just wanted to stop and give you a glimpse of this family that I'm describing. Um, the group photo is a picture of my mother's family in Lebanon. And uh, the soldier on the right is my dad. 70s in Chicago. <laughs> uh, the, the girl in red uh, is me. I was the first American born surrounded by <laughs> immigrants. So I have a map up there. <laughs> There's no Assyria. <laughs> but I just wanted to show you um, the parts of modern day uh, Middle East um, that were part of the Assyrian Empire, the ancient Assyrian Empire. And we're going back like 3,000 years. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, I, my dad you know, tried to explain at that point how we are the indigenous people of Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization tracing our roots to the ancient Assyrian Empire, that we spoke Aramaic, which is the language spoken by Jesus Christ. He reminded me of some of the stories that I already knew uh, about our famous you know, kings and queens that you may have heard of, like Hammurabi and his code of law and the epic of Gilgamesh. and how Assyrians were credited for the 360-degree circle and eventually creating the wheel. The ancient Assyrian Empire was conquered around 612 BC, and since then, the people that remained, our people that remained uh, in that area live in present-day parts of Iraq, parts of Turkey, Iran, and Syria. My family, both sides, actually originated um, from villages in southeastern Turkey and migrated over the border into Syria only about two generations ago, I would say. My great-grandfather, uh, not my great, I'm sorry, my grandfather took his family over to Syria. And while they live in these countries and, and pride themselves today on being part of the mosaic of the Middle East, they still manage to maintain their own ethnic, ethnic language, our traditions, our religion, uh, making them a dwindling minority in their uh, native homeland. And that brings me to our Eastern churches. This is a picture inside uh, my dad's parish in Long Island. The ancient Assyrians were among the first communities um, in the first century that converted to Christianity. And as the ancient church grew and spread out, you know, over centuries, um, political borders and theological differences caused factions to separate and import, uh, appoint, sorry, different, uh, their own heads of church. And today the Eastern churches are known as the Syriac Orthodox Church. We have the Syriac Catholic Church. We have the Assyrian Church of the East. We have the Chaldean Catholic Church, Rome Orthodox, 
Melkite, and Maronite church. What these churches have in common is that they all share the Syriac theological traditions, Korean Aramaic, the language spoken by Jesus Christ. These are the communities in Iraq and Syria right now that are struggling to survive. And in our film, they are commonly referred to as the Assyrian Chaldean Syriac community, who also share the same ethnic background that I described. That is my father in the middle. To his right is um, our new uh, patriarch, actually, of the Syriac Orthodox Church. And those are different patriarchs from some of the uh, Eastern um, churches. So as I mentioned, my family belongs to the Syriac Orthodox Church. And as the daughter of a priest, you can imagine the strict, to say the least, upbringing that I had. Um, but I do have colorful memories of attending you know, Sunday school, growing up and becoming the Sunday school teacher, <laughs> going on church youth group outings regularly, having choir practice at our house on Friday nights. Um, we were also very active in cultural organizations that tried to preserve the Assyrian culture and language among the people living in the diaspora. So I danced folk dances, I marched in Assyrian parades, and had to sit through classes where my aunt taught us to read and write in Aramaic. So as a child, uh, all of our events were somehow linked to the church. The church is a place that gathered all of us and brought us together, and it always has. That's just a picture of my family. I'm the oldest of five girls, um, and so we're all pictured with my parents on the left. And that's all of us on the right as well with my two nephews. Some Assyrian folk dancers. <laughs> so I'm also the descendant of a survivor of the genocide perpetrated by Ottoman Turkey in 1915 that claimed the lives of about a million and a half Assyrians, Armenians, and Greeks. My great-grandmother, uh, who was the little old lady in the middle of that family photo, she was about 14 years old at the time of that genocide. She refused to convert to Islam. She was tied to a tree and then forced to watch as her father brothers, and then the rest of her male family members were tied and bound and then slaughtered one by one while she watched. Her torment continued and included a forced marriage to the son of a Kurdish Agha at that time. She somehow managed to escape their wrath and just sort of um, hid in the first place that she could find, which was a cold, dark well, and she actually stayed there for several days until a passerby finally, um, I guess, saw her and had mercy on her. He rescued her and delivered her to a monastery, uh, which became a refuge for all the women and, and children survivors of the onslaught in that area. That shocking and horrendous story um, took place 100 years ago. But what should shock us even more is that just last year, in 2015, 
Almost the exact same atrocity befell our Christian community in Iraq when ISIS militants invaded the city of Mosul and gave the Christians there an ultimatum, which was basically to convert to Islam, to pay a heavy tax called the jizya, to die by the sword, or leave, essentially forcing everyone out overnight. The same can be said of the civil war in Syria that has driven nearly 600,000 Christians out of the country over the last four years. From 1915, the genocide that my great-grandmother endured, until now, several events have taken place in the Middle East to confirm that the genocide that began 100 years ago against Christians only continues there today. I just wanted to take a moment to share some data with you just to give you an idea of um, the treatment of Christians in the Middle East and how it's most recently affected basically their exodus. In Iraq, uh, Christians number about a million, numbered about a million and a half in 2013, which was about 6% of the population of the country at that time, which is down from 12% back in 1947. After the Iraq War, it was estimated that the number of Christians in Iraq had dropped to as low as 450,000 by 2013, with estimates as low as 200,000 since the breakout of the ISIS onslaught just two years ago. In Syria, the population of Christians originally was about 2 million, and since the Civil War, it's gone down to about 600,000. Many Christians found themselves with no choice but to flee the country, driven out by extremist groups. And in Egypt, fear of instability and heightened attacks on Christians by Islamist militants have led to over 100,000 Christians fleeing since the 2011 Arab Spring protests. Christians have been suffering under ISIS. The political situation surrounding the Syrian civil war has enabled attacks on religious minority groups by both the government and opposition-associated groups. Christian bishops, like the two pictured above, are being kidnapped. The bishop on the left was actually a schoolmate of my father's back in Khamishli, Syria. He was our bishop in Aleppo, and he's been missing for almost three years now. The bishop on the right is a Greek Orthodox, uh, well, in Syria, they're called Rum Orthodox bishop. As I was saying, bishops, nuns, and lay people have been targets of kidnappings and violence during this conflict, and churches have been intentionally attacked. All the Christian institutions in Mosul, such as churches, cemeteries, and monasteries, have either been destroyed, occupied, converted into mosques, or converted into ISIS centers, or just shut down. There is no trace of Christianity left in Mosul today. This is the Arabic letter Noon um, that ISIS used basically to brand Christian homes and Christian property in uh, Mosul when they entered last year.
Ancient Assyrian historic sites and archaeological sites in both Syria and Iraq have been looted, and artifacts and museums have been destroyed. They're completely trying to wipe out any existence of any ethnic or religious groups that existed before ISIS. So Middle Eastern Christians like my family that left the homeland and joined the diaspora, you know, we feel this huge responsibility that comes with, you know, living in a free land and, and being the voice for our communities that are still back home. Here in the United States, many of us responded to these horrific events with protests and rallies and letter writing campaigns to our government leaders. But I have to be honest, I still tended to feel guilty because here I was, you know, living in the land of the free, watching, watching these tragedies unfold, you know, essentially from the cover, comfort of my couch, just watching these things on the news or hearing them um, over the phone. And, and we essentially just sort of, we felt unable to affect any positive change for our people, at least soon enough. Um, this is actually a protest that we had uh, across the street from the United Nations just last year, last February. And this picture brings me to the journey that I embarked on just last summer. So last year, uh, my father was invited to speak <clears throat> about the Christian persecution in the Middle East um, on the Fox News show uh, called Justice with Janine. Um, and Jordan was actually on the same show um, speaking on behalf of IDC, actually. And that's how we met Jordan. He was speaking about his experience visiting um, the Middle East with IDC, and my father was talking about you know, the stories that he heard of Christians in Mosul and how um, basically the, the Christian exodus from that area. So we got to talking to Jordan, and Jordan discovered that we still had family um, in parts of Syria. <clears throat> I was explaining to him that you know, we try to stay in touch with them as much as possible, um, but that the crisis in Syria today obviously uh, makes us worry for their safety. Um, and just, we just doubt that we'll ever be able to visit those parts of our family history anymore. Uh, and then Jordan expressed his desire to visit Iraq and Syria to document this Christian persecution that's currently taking place. And before I knew it, Jordan had convinced me to find the courage to go with him and to help him produce this important documentary in which I could bridge my experiences here in the United States with my roots in the Middle East while telling the story of my persecuted Christian community as they make their last stand for survival. And that's how the film, Our Last Stand, was born. Uh, we're gonna show you some raw footage of, um, of our journey in a bit, but I just sort of wanted to give you a little bit of background on some of the things that you might see. Uh, so, so we set off last July, and our journey started in northern Iraq, in Erbil, where we visited with several displaced families, families that had left Mosul and the surrounding areas that had now um, sought refuge in, in these camps, literally. They're just tents, um, 
you know, in, in either churchyards um, or just, you know, barren land that our communities, our Christian communities in Erbil set up, set up for them. Um, our journey even took us to a remote part of the Dohuk province in Iraq, and we were literally winding through these mountains, not knowing where we were or where we were going to end up. And then we finally arrived in this secluded little village um, where we interviewed a Yazidi girl who was hiding there uh, with her family after her escape from ISIS captivity. After a few days um, in Iraq, we decided to head for the Syrian border. It's a terrain that's not as regularly traveled uh, lately, you know, ob for obvious reasons, like the civil war and security issues. It's just not as accessible as Iraq is right now, or parts of Iraq. Um, but, you know, we decided to take that risk. I was willing to take the risk, uh, you know, to see my family, and, and both of us were willing to take this risk because we just, we had to show the reality of life for the Christians living in Syria. So we braved this unofficial border crossing um, in between Syria and Iraq, which um, after much questioning, we were warned by the Kurdish border patrol that was there that they couldn't secure our safety once we decided to cross over the Tigris River and uh, we were in Syria. Uh, but nevertheless, we climbed into a motorboat, this tiny little thing with our heavy bags, and we crossed over to meet our two hosts, who were actually two members of the Syriac Military Council, which you're going to see in the footage that we show you. Um, the Syriac Military Council is it's basically a militia based in northeastern Syria that defends the Christian villages there. So our two soldiers uh, took us into the Habur region of Syria. And basically, this is an area of about 35 teeny little um, farm villages all nestled together, one right after the other in this row along the Habur River. Um, but last year, this, this very fertile area, last February, was attacked by ISIS. And so after ISIS um, attacked, threatened, pillaged, um, that wasn't enough. They decided to take 250 members from those villages as hostages, mainly you know, women and children. The last of who were actually just finally released about a month ago. But the villages, you know, now completely uninhabitable, um, were there, and, and we had an opportunity to to visit and walk through the debris and ruins of one um, small village called Tel Nasri. And um, one of our guides actually told us not to touch anything that looked unfamiliar to us because they're still in the process of clearing out all the uh, mortars left behind uh, by ISIS. And, and I'll never forget this. I looked at Jordan and I whispered, everything looks unfamiliar, you know? We're walking through a bunch of degree, debris. I mean, it's just rubble everywhere, you know? Um, and then the soldiers actually told us that ISIS actually came back to the empty villages afterwards to plant bombs and mortars in places like the front door of a house or inside a refrigerator to specifically target anyone who dared go back home to resume his normal life. Later on that same day, Jordan and I found ourselves on the rooftop of an abandoned schoolhouse that, you're going to, that you saw in the trailer, actually, and you'll see again in a little bit. 
that has now become a front line in the war against ISIS. And so um, on that note, I think I'll hand it over to Jordan again um, so that he can walk you through some of the footage and so that some of these stories that I shared with you can actually come to life. A couple of notes, a couple of things I wanted to just quickly mention that kind of off-the-cuff comments, but uh, responding to Helma. One thing that I think I have to remind myself of, she was talking about her grandmother's experience or her, her family's experience 100 years ago with the Ottomans and also with the Kurds. Because nowadays we hear about the Kurds in northern Iraq and, and in Syria as being sort of who the, you know, the, the group that we need to support, the group that the U.S. government supports. And that might be true. They do a lot of good things. They, they have helped uh, Christians in a lot of ways. But a lot of Christians, um, you know, Syrians, Chaldeans, and Syriacs, they, there's a deep distrust of the Kurds because of what happened with the genocide 100 years ago. And a lot of the persecution is still taking place. Are they better than ISIS? Sure. That's sort of a low bar. Um, so it depends on who you talk to. If you, when you talk to Assyrians, some get along well with the Kurds or they have a positive, more of a positive view. Others, there's a deep distrust, uh, almost hatred of the Kurds because of what happened to their families and what, in some cases, is still happening. Um, I, I would like to show a, about an eight-minute clip. Now, I, I'm a filmmaker, so I have to point this out that for some reason, some of the, if, if you notice, some of the, and I know this is sort of a, a small point, but some of the audio is a, a bit off and some of the, the, uh, the color is a bit off in Helma's faces and some of the faces of the people. So keep that in mind. I think it's because I'm showing a QuickTime file on a PC or something. But um, the clip I'm going to show is from the outskirts of Erbil. Uh, I, I've, I've been to ref refugee camps in, in Lebanon and Iraq, Syria, Nigeria, Cameroon, a lot of different places. Uh, I've never been to a refugee camp like the one we're, we're going to show you because of how well run it is. Uh, there's a, a priest there. His name is Father Douglas Bazi, Chaldean priest from Baghdad. And only later did I find, find out a little bit more about his story. His story is a film in and of itself. But when he was in Baghdad, he, he had been shot. He had been kidnapped and tortured. His teeth were knocked out. And, you know, a lot of things happened to him. He finally ended up in Erbil, uh, was at, a, a, I guess, a parish there called, called uh, Maralia Church. And everything happened in Mosul, in the outskirts of Mosul. And a lot of the refugees went to Erbil and, and other uh, places in northern Iraq. So all of a sudden, he started up a refugee camp. And we, we went to a number of refugee camps. And like I said, they're, they're doing a lot with a little. But, but Father Bazi is, and he's, I think he's been featured on either 60 Minutes or 2020. Um, he was actually at an event uh, last week for IDC speaking about his, his experiences in Iraq. Um, but he's, he's such a great example of people sort of stepping up, you know, when they're needed. And, and so let me show you that, that clip of uh, Father Bazi's refugee camp. All right, thank you. Uh, some of the audio is still a little rough, and uh, we have to subtitle some of the Arabic, although he does speak in Assyrian as well, which we, we found more people speaking in Assyrian in Syria uh, than in, in, in Iraq. They tend to speak Arabic, but I know you always prefer it when they speak Assyrian or, or uh, Aramaic. 
Um, I, I want to show another clip, but I do want to also just touch on one thing. I, we kind of started late, so I want to speed through it a bit to get to any questions you might have. But, you know, I want to ask a rhetorical question and, and answer it quickly. And it's a question a lot of people in, in Washington have, have been asking themselves and a lot of people have already come to a conclusion about, and that is, should the international community, so you and me and everybody else, should we be helping Christians to stay in their homeland or should we be helping them to leave and, and live their life where they can practice their faith and where they have more long-term opportunity? Now, I, I've listened to a lot of experts who have studied this longer than I have, and many of them ha have come to the conclusion that Christianity in the Middle East is, is dead. There's no future for, for Christianity throughout the Middle East. And Helma went over some of the, some of the stats. Um, I, I know in Iraq, I think the numbers, uh, about 100 years ago, I think the population was about 10% Christian, and now it's one, yeah, down to six. So, yeah, and I think it might even be... You know, getting it's going down quickly. Even since two thousand and three, since you know the war in Iraq in two thousand three, it's gone down quite a bit. Um, now, there's a number of factors. We know about the persecution, the genocide officially that's taking place there, but there's also other other factors like the birth rates. Muslims tend to have more children. Uh, immigration rates. Uh, you know, Christians tend to be a little bit more well off. They have family in other parts of the world. If they have, they have the opportunities to leave, they do and. Nobody faults them for wanting to do that if, if they feel like that's the best option. But again, because traveling to the, to the region and talking to people there, um, because so many people who have left will obviously argue that it, it might be best if, if Christians do leave. But many who have stayed have a different viewpoint, different perspective. So I feel like it's my almost responsibility to convey that point of view. And I want to give you four quick reasons why we should be working to help Christians stay in the Middle East. Um, the first point is pretty obvious, but it's, it's their right. So not only is it a right for a person to live where they want to live, but uh, you know, many Muslims will argue, well, you know, especially generally the extremists will argue that Christians in the Middle East are just an extension of the West and thus are outsiders. But of course, that's patently false. Christianity existed a long time, 700 years before Islam was even about. And as we know, ethnically, those groups like Assyrians have been in the Middle East for thousands of years, even before Christianity. So that arg argument doesn't really hold much water. And the second argument is, is something that I wouldn't have thought about even a year ago, and that is sort of based more on ethnicity. So, and, and Helma has already talked a lot about this, but I've slowly been kind of converted to understand this perspective, because if you're living as a Christian in, let's say, Syria and you're being persecuted, or in Iraq, even if you're not living under ISIS, you still might feel like a second-class citizen, you're not able to practice your faith the way that you want to. So coming to, let's say, Steubenville, you're going to be able to practice your faith a lot, with a lot more freedom, and be around other Christians, and your faith is going to grow. I mean, it's, it would be fantastic, spiritually. But ethnically, you know, when, when somebody comes to the United States, and we've heard this over and over, Maybe the first generation, let's say they come from like Colombia or something in, in South America, you know, the first generation might not speak much English, but by, you know, two generations later, the grandparents are saying, wow, my, my children, they don't, they don't know the language, they don't know the, the customs, they don't know the heritage, and there's a lot of sadness there. They become Americanized they, around a lot more, you know, different people. Um, I mean, I, I, was, I was born in, uh, in England and a lot of my family lives there. I'm less English because I, I came here when I was young, of course, but at the same time, I'm not, there are a lot of English people around. 
people speaking English. And I, I go back there all the time. But for, let's say, Assyrians, there's so few Assyrians out there that when they move, you know, that sort of process of losing that heritage, losing the language, losing the customs, something that they know that their forefathers have sort of sacrificed and suffered and in many cases died for, as Helma described, they, they feel like they're abandoning their culture. So a, a lot of the people that we met with uh, in Iraq and Syria, they said, well, you know, we, we want, we need our people to stay behind, to keep our communities intact. So because we know once they leave, that process of losing that our culture is just going to, you know, quicken so much more. The third point is that, you know, we know, and I'm going to show a couple of pictures here that, you know, you know this better than I do probably, but, you know, Christians are called to be salt of the earth, right? So even a little bit, even 1%, 2%, 3% of us, in Egypt it's 10% still with Coptics. In Lebanon, luckily, it's, it's 30 40%, which is the, the highest percentage, I think, in the Middle East. But even just a few of us are, you know, if we're there, we're able to change the culture in a positive way. And that's what we're called to do. We're not called to just be in the places where we feel most comfortable. Again, I mean, it's easy for me to say. But when there are Christians out there who are willing, they feel it's their vocation, their calling to be there, even in the dangerous, difficult uh, situations and, and places in the world, you know, I, I feel like we should be helping them to do so. If we can't be there, let's help those who want to be there be there. Um, Two years ago, my first trip to, to Lebanon, I, uh, I was able to go to the border between Lebanon and, and Syria in the Becca Valley, and I spent a day visiting with the Sisters of the Good Shepherd. I'm going to try to bring up a, a quick, quick photo here. Okay, so this is one of the sisters. There's only a small group of them, and they, they've been there for, I don't know, 100 years or so. They moved to that area of, of uh, Lebanon. And this, you know, originally their, their vocation was not to help refugees, but after the start of the civil war in Syria, all of a sudden tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of mainly Muslims were coming across the border seeking safety, coming from Syria into Lebanon. All of a sudden their, their vocation changed and they started helping uh, these refugees, again, mainly Muslims. So you have the numbers here, but I think there's only eight sisters there, and they've been featured in magazines and, and, and all over the place. But, um, you know, they, they, they felt like that was their, their calling, to help not only Christians, but to help whoever they came across, in, in this case, Muslims. Now, um, they help about 8,000 refugees at any given time, the, the eight of them. Now, they have some other volunteers who help them, but they, there's eight sisters. Now, the question is, how many of these 8,000 refugees are, what's the likelihood that they're going to become radicalized? It's pretty, pretty small. I mean, maybe a few, but the likelihood of them being radicalized is decreased significantly because of their, uh, in their time of need, the sisters were there for them. They have a positive view of Christians, of Christianity, uh, because of the sisters. Now, and that kind of brings me to, to my fourth point, which is, it's really in our national interest and in the really security of the world that Christians stay in the Middle East. Otherwise, it becomes sort of one big Saudi Arabia. There's a reason why groups, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or, or you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, why they want Christians to leave, because they know that the power of Christianity can have. And if, if there are no Christians around to prove what they're radical, how they're radicalizing young people and saying certain things about Christians, if there are no Christians around, you know, then obviously there's not another perspective, point of view. Uh, 
Um, and this brings me to, to uh, I want to show another photo here of a, a group of sisters in Egypt called the Sisters of Mahdi. Here they are. They're kind of a similar story to uh, Sisters of the Good Shepherd. So I was able to go to Egypt, and the Sisters of Mahdi have a small sort of hospital that uh, exists on the outskirts of, of Cairo. And we were there 2013, about a month before, this is when the Muslim Brotherhood was still in power, a month before the sort of second revolution that kicked them out of power. But um, again, they, they serve mainly poor, mainly uneducated, younger, big families of, of Muslims. Um, you can see the, the sisters in their habits and, and the young man who, and his friends who are helping him and broken his leg or something, but he's wearing a traditional sort of you know, Muslim uh, clothes, the man with the broken leg. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's that impact. All of these, these are the individuals, these are the young people, the young, uneducated, uh, mainly poor Muslims that the radicals seek to radicalize. And an example of how, what, what kind of impact that these sisters have on them is before we were there, there was a lot of church burnings, a lot of Christians were attacked, many even killed. And at the time that this was taking place, every night, um, the, the Muslims of the neighborhood where outside of Cairo, where the Sisters of Mahdi live, where they have their clinic, they would come every night and encircle the sisters and the clinic to protect them. Because, you know, they knew that the sisters were there for them, you know, when they had a broken leg or when their child was sick, and, you know, they wanted to kind of repay that. So we lose that when, when Christians, especially those who want to stay, leave. Now, um, I want to show you a quick video, about five minutes long, of our time in Hasaka, Syria. Now, I don't think you touched too much on Hasaka, but we, uh, we've talked about MFS, this Christian militia, and some of the footage we, we, we showed uh, in, in the trailer, but we spent a day in Hasaka, and the time that we went there, uh, it is in northeast Syria, but it's, it's controlled by three groups. So a third of the city was controlled by ISIS, a third of the city was controlled by the Assad uh, military, and a third by a combination of the Kurds and MFS. In this case, they're working together, the Kurds and the Christians. So we went there to the front lines, and they took us around. In the, in the final movie, we're going to have some narration in there, so there might be some slow points. But they took us around to a number of different posts and showed us, you know, kind of talked us through it and said, well, here, you know, we have the Assad government. We're, they're not really fighting us, but they're not really fighting ISIS. They're just there, or... ISIS, you know, they're, they're present over in this neighborhood and we're, we're fighting them here. Um, and actually, it's interesting because I don't think this is in the video, but they had a plan to um, basically get rid of ISIS. Or actually, ISIS had asked them, they said, look, we're trapped in Hasaka when we were there. Um, they said, if, if we have a ceasefire, will you allow us to leave? And the Kurds and the Christians said, no, we want to kill you off <laughs> because they knew. That's, that, you know, I don't know if that's the right response, but they said, no, you're going to come back and kill us another time. We, we need to finish you. Um, and two weeks after we got back, they did, they actually did kick ISIS completely out of, uh, out of Hasaka. But of course, you know, a month later, there's still a lot of clashes in that area. It's, it's still up for grabs. So let me show you that short video. So that, that bit there is going to have a bit of narration we haven't, we haven't included yet. Uh, Helm is ultimately going to be narrating some of the film. But there's a flag off in the distance. They were just pointing it out because it's sort of that the ISIS flag that everybody knows. So 
we have that uh, in, in the uh, in the film. Um, I know we're kind of running short on time, so I want to speed things along and see if you guys have any questions. And I want to give Helma the chance to, to say a couple of last words. But I also want to mention IDC and some of the things that, that they're doing. And I, had, I have a PowerPoint that they, they gave to me that really could be a whole presentation in and of itself. But I, I would just say, I mean, I, I, I you know, was with IDC from the beginning, and I do a lot of their video work and photography as well as uh, you know being a senior advisor and, and giving talks and things like that but it is really you know the, an ideal organization to get involved with um, sort of on the ground floor because they've only been around for a year and a half two years um, you know Andrew Doran who went to uh, grad school here started IDC pretty much with an idea because he saw that there wasn't an organization out there that would do, well, he had the idea of, of, of three things originally, which is unity, so unifying the diaspora, so all the different Middle Eastern Christian groups, which are not traditionally, they don't traditionally, I think Helen would agree, work that well together, bringing them together, but also bringing them together with Christians and other people of goodwill here in the U.S. Um, because so many Americans like me, I didn't know much about Christians in the Middle East. And I still see it even more, less so with, with Roman Catholics, I think. But I think evangelicals, that's, I used to be evangelical, so I can say this maybe. But I think they need a lot of education about the fact their brothers and sisters in Christ exist in the Middle East and what's taking place to them. Um, so unity is the first sort of part of their vision. The second part is awareness, so education. And that's kind of where I come in with, with, with my work. You need to educate people, and that leads to advocacy. So they're, they're doing a lot of advocacy. We saw it with the, with the uh, resolution, um, other work that they're doing based in Washington, D.C. But, you know, you have to make their, the members of Congress, their constituents aware of what's going on. And all of a sudden, you know, somebody in, in, in Nebraska says, oh, look, you know, there are Christians that are being, you know, beheaded and crucified, and they're just being persecuted, and you know, I'm going to talk to my representative, and then the representative is like, oh, I didn't even know that was happening. Or now, you know, my boss, which is a constituent, is telling me it's important to him or her. I better go and, and bring it up in, in Washington. So that's just the way it happens. But, it, you know, obviously they work hand in hand. And the last thing that the IDC is doing is relatively new, which is charitable work. Now, there are a lot of great organizations out there, Kanawa. Um, aid to the church in need. I mean, there are a lot of great organizations that have been running for a long time that do uh, charitable work, but IDC is starting to get into that as well and, and deliver goods, especially in Lebanon, to refugees. Because the Christian refugees tend to not go to, for example, UN refugee camps because uh, they're a minority there and oftentimes they're persecuted inside the camps. And you, the UN tend to, they tend not to understand you know, the plight of Christians because they look at everybody as just being people, which is great, but they don't understand that in the Middle East, in Africa, other parts of the world, it's not that simple. It's a little bit more complicated. So the refugees are sort of left. The Christian ones aren't given a lot of aid, and they need aid through the church, and they're getting, they're getting that through organizations like IDC. Now, we mentioned the resolution. So uh, this just, you know, took place. Um, last week, and it was great. Now, the genocide resolution, people say, well, what does that mean? You know, it doesn't actually have any legal back, you know, it doesn't make the U.S., for example, obligated to do anything legally, but it does raise it to another level morally. Uh, it's only the sixth time in history, I believe, that the U.S. has ever recognized genocide, 
And as Helma mentioned, 100 years ago, a genocide that took, took the lives of a million Assyrians and Armenians and, and others uh, has still not been recognized by the U.S., even though it's been recognized by almost every other country, or at least European country. Um, and so the fact that they did recognize what's going on to Christians and Yazidis and others uh, right now is, is a big step. Now, for IDC, this is sort of uh, breaking news, but th their next focus is going to be creating a, trying to create a safe haven for Christians, um, and I think specifically in Iraq right now, because the civil war in Syria is much more difficult to, to maneuver. Um, and so, again, that speaks to what I was talking about earlier about the need for Christians to stay, and, and a safe haven would, would go a long way, bringing together an international coalition to protect Christians and others, um, you know, long term. Uh, it, that would be a fantastic, uh, you know, goal to to accomplish. And also, you know, you should look up IDC in Defense of Christians dot uh, com or dot org, maybe both. Uh, you know, they're on social media. They have a lot of Facebook followers, one hundred thirty thousand or something like that, which is for a new organization is quite a bit. And you know, follow them. They're starting chapters all over the country. Uh, and I know that they want to start, they're a pretty small operation as far as the number of, of people. And in talking with others, I mean, within a year and a half, two years, and again, I'm biased, but I'm, I'm kind of looking at it, um, you know, objectively, that they've really gained a lot of uh, respect from the international human rights community in just that short amount of time. So if, if you're interested, if you're ever going to go to D.C. internships, uh, they want to start chapters at universities. I think Steubenville would be the, per the perfect place to do that. First, you know, to be the sort of initial, the first uh, university chapter because of, you know, the ties to the university and because it's, I mean, you guys are the perfect audience. You're the, you're the perfect people because you are relatively new to the issue, kind of like me. Like, it's, it's not part of our ethnic heritage or uh, in the same way it is for Helma, but you're young, you're passionate, you know, you, you have that faith background that connects with those people there. And so that's why so many people who have come to this, or gone to this university have, have uh, you know, started IDC. So check them out, um, you know, email them. It's just, again, it's a small operation, so they'll, um, you know, mention, mention this talk and they'll give you ways to get more involved uh, in, in what they're trying to do. Um, I want to give Helma the opportunity to, you know, give us any final words. I, I, I do have one last thing to say, though. A, a picture I want to show that I uh, that that is important to me because you might have seen this guy in the. Uh, hold on. So it's a photo I took. It actually won a couple of awards, New York Photo Festival. The documentary photo award. Um, we took that. You might have seen the video shots of it, but when we were there on the front lines, and you know this older guy sort of leaned over and, and he put his uh, hand on the shoulder of this younger fighter with MFS. I, you know, it just jumped out at me. It's like, okay, give me the camera. I got to. I got to take this photo. Um, and MFS actually has used this photo quite a bit to sort of represent them. Um, and it's funny, about a month, it's about a month ago, I think that the older gentleman heard from others that his, his, you know, his face was all over internet or over Facebook. So he, I think he joined Facebook and he friended me. <laughs> I was like his second friend. And 
Anyway, sorry, I... So a couple weeks after that, and we kind of exchanged, uh, you know, messages and translated in Arabic and whatnot. And, um, he, he actually was killed. And, you know, I wasn't really sure, like, why it affected me so much. But it, it was very important to them. You know, they had another martyr. And he died, you know, as a part of a battle that they actually, it was a, it was a victorious battle that they gained back some land. And it was, he died with another, uh, another fighter. And it was interesting to me, especially that, a few days later, I found out, now this is the Syriac military council. They're fighting with the Kurds. Kurds are Muslim. And, you know, Syriac military council is Christian. He's actually Muslim. He's one of, I think, two, two or three Muslims who have actually decided to fight with MFS. And, and people started to kind of find that out on the internet. And, and everybody I know in the, in the Syriac community and MFS, they're like, you know, this guy's just as much, you know, part of us and one of our martyrs, just like anybody else. And they've really sort of raised him up as, you know, a hero, as they should. So. I just wanted to close today uh, by sharing just a few final thoughts about my time with my family in Syria. <clears throat> I still can't believe that I was in Syria last summer. Uh, but my parents were even more shocked <laughs> that I was in Syria because I didn't tell them I was going, actually. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but you know, there's a civil war going on there. I mean, everybody we know is trying to get out of Syria. And there was no way I could tell them that I was going to go with this filmmaker and cross this illegal border into Syria, you know? Um, they knew I was going to Iraq, and they knew the areas in Iraq that we were um, going to visit were, were, are still pretty secure. But So they didn't know I was going to Syria. And of course, my family in Syria wasn't expecting me because I couldn't tell them in advance that I was going to be there. <clears throat> Um, so it was a surprise uh, to them as well. Um, I had been to Syria once, uh, 16 years ago, when I graduated college. Um, and please don't do the math. But that was my first visit to the Middle East. And I, I planned on staying three months. And then I extended my trip. I actually spent six months there um, just because I really loved it so much. You know, all the stories that I had heard uh, growing up from my parents, you know, finally came uh, came to life in front of me, and, and I felt really comfortable there, surprisingly. Um, and I have a lot of cousins my age there, and so when I went back and saw them this summer, you know, it was nice to see them all grown up, and they're all starting families of their own. Um, when, I fit, when, I, when I visited them 16 years ago, none of them were saying that, oh, we're dying to leave Syria. No, they were all in college, and um, at that time, you know, the village where they lived, um, was pretty safe. They never anticipated the civil war that they're living through now. Um, so no, they, you know, they would have never thought to leave Syria. But in talking to them this past visit, um, they sounded so different, almost desperate, which made me so sad for them. Um, I just want to show you. Uh, 
So these are just a couple of my cousins. The two girls there are sisters. Um, the one with the daughter in her lap, that's my cousin, uh, Maria. Um, she's an English teacher, actually. <clears throat> and it, during this last visit, um, we shared a lot of tears, actually. She suffered for six months um, recently when her husband uh, disappeared. And later on, they found out that he was in a Syrian prison um, because he's an activist and he was speaking out against the regime. Um, he's, he's been released, um, but suffers physical and emotional trauma and now lives in exile in Europe, apart from his wife and children. Uh, but anyway, um, we made it back home and I had a lot of stories to share with my family here, you know. Um, they all, you know, just really wanted to hear about how the family's doing in Syria. Are they, are they safe? Do they want to get out? You know, what's, what's going on there? Um, but honestly, when I saw them, things in Qamishli, in that town, were still kind of stable. You know, and that's what I said. I said, they're still okay. Um, and they said, but ISIS is only, what did they say, 700 meters away? And I was like, yeah, we're wherever we were. ISIS was only, you know, 30-minute drive away, but I guess um, you're kind of lucky if ISIS is 30 minutes away and, and you're living in the Middle East. So, yeah, they're 30 minutes away from ISIS, and they felt safe, believe it or not. But um, <clears throat> so, you know, after I told them that, you know, a few months go by. Now it's December. It's after Christmas. And everything changed in Klamishli. Um On New Year's Eve, this you know, this past New Year's, three bombs went off in that town in Klamishli, targeting three different restaurants in the Christian quarters of Klamishli. Several people that were in the restaurants or near the restaurants were killed or severely injured. And so, of course, my family here in the United States, we were frantic. You know, we couldn't get in touch with anyone um, for, a, for a while. You know, we turned on the Assyrian TV stations, the Arabic news channels, and, you know, we're basically eating that up. You know, we turned into Facebook. But you know how Facebook is. People started posting stuff on Facebook. They started posting pictures of the wreckage. They started posting pictures of the victims and videos of the either dead or wounded in the hospitals. And then my mother called me. She, she asked if I had met my cousin Gemma's husband during my last visit this summer. Now Gemma's husband is the, is the man in the right wearing the green sweater. So I said, yeah, um, Eli, I met him. She said, yeah, his name is Eli. She said, we just saw his picture on Facebook. We saw his lifeless body in a picture on Facebook, and that's how we found out that Gemma's husband was um, killed instantly in the attacks. He and several other family members and friends were out on that New Year's Eve um, at a local coffee shop um, when somebody walked in um, and just, you know, detonated a bomb. Um, my uncle, who is Eli's father-in-law, 
was also there when the explosions went off. He was playing cards with some buddies and they were all sitting around and he said that everyone he was sitting with just went up in flames. He, had, he, thank God, made it out with minor injuries, but his son was rushed to the hospital with a leg injury and his son-in-law, Eli, died on the spot. So, you know, I have an emotional connection to this particular story, but it's literally, it's one of a collection of heart-wrenching stories that we've collected from our journey, many of which will be told in the full documentary that we hope to release very soon. And I can't help feeling sad, obviously, when I think about Eli and the family that he left behind. It's his daughter, Perla. But I try and, you know, think of the potential that this documentary will have when we show viewers that there are actually Christians living in the Middle East among these Islamic militants. And yes, these Christians have been there for generations, and they trace their roots to the cradle of civilization, the same land that these religious fanatics are trying to claim as their own now. And yes, these people need help from the international Christian and human rights organizations who will speak up for them to finally end this constant persecution in the Middle East and finally help secure their human rights in their native homeland. So, thank you. Questions, I just want to say one last thing to kind of leave it on a little bit more of a positive note since we, we told some sad stories. Um, that, you know, I, I used to do a lot of work in, you know, I started out talking about you know, the little things that we can do to bring about some positive change, uh, have a positive effect. And a lot of the people we met, I mean, they, they, they want people to help in any way possible. And nowadays with social media especially, a little bit of solidarity goes a long way. Um, and I have a story from, I used to do work in Cuba, and I did a lot of work with political prisoners there. And I think it really sort of underscores how much of an impact you can have, sometimes without even knowing it or realizing it. So you do something and you don't feel like you're doing, having an impact, but you're, the ripples you know, just keep going and going and going, and you're having a lot of impact, even though you don't, you're never going to know about it. You have to have faith. So I remember meeting a particular political prisoner who had spent, he wasn't more of, you know, one of the, the well-known ones who had a lot of attention, but he was sentenced to sort of 25 years in prison for you know, speaking up about whatever, something small, um, uh, freedom of speech. And, you know, he, he noticed that, that, that somebody told him when they came to visit him, in prison, he was, you know, kept in solitary confinement and beaten and just horrible conditions. And really, he was on the edge of almost suicide because he and going crazy because of the situation he was in. He felt like he was forgotten um, by the world. And even though he had sacrificed so much for a principle, nobody knew about it, and he felt like it didn't make a difference. But somebody told him, and he, he was relaying the story to me later, that something on on you know, somebody had made a little meme or something with his face on it and it, and it said, you know, or, or maybe it was a Facebook page that said, like, pray for, for him. Um, and that his, his wife, who had come to visit him, had, had told him about that and how that totally changed everything for him. To know that one person cared enough and realized and recognized the sacrifice 
um, that he had had taken and sort of stood in solidarity with him, even over social media, that completely changed his perspective on his condition, you know, psychologically and, and spiritually, and it helped him to get through everything that he was going to endure and was enduring. So, you know, I just want to say that to kind of underscore the point of the little things that can go a long way. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.